Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Christian Wilhoff, sales consultant at Southern Glazers Wine and Spirit in San Antonio, Texas. Christian and I talk about George Clooney. We talk about noodles, and we get into the world-famous chive test. Thanks, as always, for listening. Enjoy. Born in Mobile, Alabama, and then you called out multiple places. It was Omaha. It was Colorado, like all the different places you spent California. And then the thing that I thought was really interesting is then also in your bio, you talked about like love, travel. You talked about Asia. You talked about Ireland. Every time you travel to a different place, it makes you a better person, especially outside of the country. Like I could not agree with that more. And I think the more we travel, the more we experience, the more we get connected to people. And so I thought that was really great yeah. that from get that travel, that experience was something that's within you. And yeah. then knowing that education is really important to you as well. And educating Knowledge is power, with, baby. It's 100%. So reflect on that a little bit. I think that's interesting. Moving around a lot, it can be two things. One, it can be super disruptive. You're always at a new school, that kind of thing, you know, and yeah. the, the cliche movie of like the new kid getting punked. Like I was even homeschooled f- for a little bit. Right. I, I was yeah. in homeschool for a minute as well. And I grew up in Germany and like, I'm, I'm feeling you on that. But then on the flip side, you have so much respect for people and travel. I always say that I'm so great at making acquaintances, but I struggle with making friends. I'm also so great as like absorbing people's culture because I've moved around so much that it was always learning about other people's thing because it was always yeah. so new. So you see that reflecting in yourself quite a bit? A hundred percent. I mean, I have finding real friends these days, you know, I mean, like I'm 33 now, you've known me for a long time. I've always been a social butterfly, if you will. I mean, we, you have to be in the industry that we're in to a certain extent, but um, finding and maintaining those friends, especially at this age is uh, even harder, I would say. Um, I've got, you know, my core group of friends and most of them, you know, would, we go travel together. Like my, my good buddy, Bobby Rayburn, who works at duo restaurant in Denver, um, who hopefully we can touch on him a little bit later too. Um, we went to Thailand together and we were there for like 17 days and it was incredible. Those relationships are so fundamental being in the hospitality industry. You're in a people business, right? And then uh, I loved reading this too. At 13, you were working in your mom's popcorn shop, making popcorn balls and dipped apples. Tell me about that experience. Oh, man. So it was called Robin's Gourmet Popcorn and Sweet Shop. And Where was uh, it? it That was in Wichita Falls, Texas. And she had this, like, I don't even know how it happened. I swear to God, I think one day I just, like, woke up. And I was like, fuck, mama's got a popcorn shop. Like, we're like, okay, cool. I'm dipping apples now. Like, I don't really remember how it transpired. Um, but yeah, she bought all this equipment and I think she was like renting this like little storefront from one of her friends or whatever. She's like, whatever I wanted to do. It's such a random thing to do. Like in this day and age, 
that would never in a million years, you're not just going to be like, I'm going to open up a popcorn shop and just have that be wildly successful, right? But my mom just loved it. We had like over 40 different flavors, which I vividly remember. And so me, just, just like super young, little, you know, ridiculously hyper ADHD Christian, not only am I getting to eat like caramel apples and, <laughs> you know, like make all these cool, you know, like little helper with like specialty, like little confections and all this jazz. But I'm also like, oh, I wonder what root beer and jalapeno cheddar popcorn would taste like, you know? So I would, I would constantly be like messing around with these weird, just ridiculous, like stupid flavors. And every now and then my mom would be like, that's actually okay. I think one was like, like cherry jalapeno or something, or I don't know, something like some, something fruity and something spicy. And I remember vividly as a kid to be like, oh, that's pretty cool. She liked that. And I think you, I can. You were chefing that. it up already, huh? I mean, if you can call that chefing, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I was being creative with weird powders that went out popcorn for sure. I would say that. You were, you were starting to, to uh, explore flavor profiles. Right off the bat when you were saying that, it reminded me of going to like 7-Eleven doing a suicide or whatever where you just like yeah. get like every single soda across. Tasted yeah. like shit, but you were or just sl- so excited. <laughs> or Slurpees, yeah. Or Be like, Slurpees. I am making something. Be like, I like that. Cher- and cherry jalapeno. Now you're like, yep, I get it. Yeah, 100%. Now, I would, <laughs> you know, who are you talking about 7-Eleven? You go in there and you'd be like, oh, what if I put cherry and coca-cola together and then i remember vividly one day they just magically came up with cherry coke slurpee and i was like damn i'm not original anymore you're like i thought i invented that i thought that was all me (laughs) i thought it was really special (laughs) i thought it was perfect i dig it uh i loved reading this as well that when you were in uh omaha you were cooking for george clooney when they're filming up in the air that movie what was yeah, that experience man. like? That was so random. So I was working at this place called Stokes. Um, it was like elevated uh, American Mexican cuisine, essentially. Um, guys who owned the place, or the guy who owned the place, his name is John Ursic. Super intense chef. I definitely owe him a lot um, to, to how I care about food, um, even, you know, and look at the service industry even today. Uh, but yeah, I was working in this place and these guys were, were coming in, um, for a dinner and we knew it was a large party. It was like a 20 top or something. And, uh, so they came in, we executed everything like flawlessly, you know, they had a fantastic time. Um, and I was, you, you know how, when you're like really young and there's all those different hierarchies in the kitchen and you want to see yourself in one of them. So not only like, like I was, I was the guy like under the sous chef. I don't even know what you'd call that today but like that was me and I thought that was so cool but there was also like an executive sue and the executive chef so I was like whatever fourth fifth and third pole so uh the guys came up it was an open window concept and the guys came up and they were like thank you guys so much blah 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 they were talking they were like food was great and one of the guys at the table approached the kitchen manager and approached John Ursick the owner who's there helping us execute the dinner and he was like do you have any of your line cooks that would potentially um be able to you know, or like, do they have sporadic days off? Do they have like a three, two or three day stretch where they have days off? And of course I didn't at the time. I was just trying to work my ass off as much as I could. And which is what we all do when we first start cooking in kitchens. Um, but John Ursick thought of me and he was like, Hey Christian, uh, these guys have an opportunity. And apparently there's a film that's being filmed here 
it was out by Epley Airfield. That's where the airport was called. Um, and so John Ursick, the owner, was nice enough to let me take, I think it was like four days off, like in a row. And I made, I made like 150 bucks a day, which back then, when you're a super young, you were kid, rich. I was, I mean, you were rich. Balling. Absolutely. I was like, I'm going to go buy a fucking Ferrari. I'm going to, I don't know what I thought. It was actually, it was more like, I'm going to go buy a new bicycle or an Xbox or some shit. But um, yeah, and we have this like incredible like mobile kitchen. It was a crazy, I still have never seen anything like it in my entire life. Essentially just take like a fifth wheel, like the nicest, like longest, I think they're like 47 feet these days. The, the fifth wheels that people take uh, like RVing and camping with like all the luxuries, but retrofitted inside to be like a completely like beautiful, what you would think would be like a mobile Michelin star looking restaurant on the inside. So I got to cook in this thing and uh, the whole, the whole, you know, crew would come up. It was three days. We do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And um, yeah, the crew would just come through the line and George Clooney would come through the line. He'd be like, thanks so much. He told me, he told me I made him a really good Denver omelet and I'll never forget that. That's blowing your mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. How old oh, were man. you? Uh, I think it was like 17. Probably like 17. 16, 17. It's kind of like, how do you seven, go up seven. from there? Right? Yeah. You're like, I, cool, wait, I've no, done no, it. No. I quit. Yeah. No, I, that, that was after high school. I'm sorry, Jensen. That was after high school. So I was probably like 19-ish, 19 or 20-ish. That's right, 19. Who cares? 19, 20, 21, I, I was 22. It doesn't matter, I was right? Young. That's I already, just, we, we all know how the service industry just blurs. And you're like, where the fuck did those nine years of my life go? Yeah. I was I was under 25 years old. That's I was under, I yeah. Remember. Can we just say that? Just cut everything out and say I'm under yep. 25. I like um, it. I like it. So that, yeah, that, that like really set, cool. the, that set the tone just for, wow, being you – you're into flavor profiles. Now you're working at a restaurant where they're pushing you in the quality of food. Then you're cooking in this crazy mobile kitchen. Basically, you're cooking on Mars Denver omelets for George Clooney. For George Clooney. I mean, that yeah. sets that sets this the bar yeah. super high, which which I love hearing that. <laughs> I, now I want to take cool. a complete 180 because yeah. I loved reading this about you because it's so hard in this industry that's so high energy. And clearly, we're talking about you doing high energy, insane stuff, working so much. And then I loved reading this. You tie your own flies for fly fishing. And I talk yeah. about stuff like this all the time. I think it's interesting when we have positive outlets or things that like slow us the fuck down <laughs> in this industry. Yeah. Give us some of that. Why is that something that really means something to you and, and, and maybe what it is that could give us all a little bit of a roadmap to, to balance our, ourselves out a little bit in this industry? Yeah, I mean, um, you've worked with me for a long time. You know, like, the crazy places we've worked. And I think once I only really started fly fishing, like, really delving into fly fishing intensely within the past probably seven years, like, seven, seven, eight years, sort of. Um, and I was always super intimidated by it, and I think that's where it spawned from. Anything I've ever been super intimidated by, intimidated by, I really just want to – I want to be able to slay it. I want to be able to do it. And so um, I saw my buddy Ryan, Ryan Knesny in Denver. Uh, he was one of the first people to ever take me out fly fishing. And he was, I mean, if you've ever seen a fly, they are just like so ridiculously small, the flies that we use for fly fishing, the flies that you're actually tying on to the end of the line. Um, 
And you'd never in a million years look at this tiny hook and look at this thing and think that you could catch a 18, 20 inch trout on this thing, brown trout, rainbow trout, whatever cutthroat. Um, but I think for me, just like what you said, it was a way for me to just like hone in on one thing and really focus intently and just kind of, like you said, slow my mind down because it really does help. And especially when I'm out there on the water, um, you know, fly fishing, you're standing in the middle of a river or a little, you know, babbling brook or a stream or whatever. And you're catching these like beautiful wild fish off of something that you made to emulate this weird bug that (laughs) probably never actually will see one like emerge out of the water, but you're, you know, seeing pictures of it and YouTube. YouTube is your friend in that YouTube and having very patient friends is the best way to do that. The patience is, seems like the hardest part. Right. When I read that, I thought right away, I was like, you know what? There's quite a few other chefs like Jamie Fader, Justin Brunson, Sorensen. I like to see those guys. Kevin, Kevin Grossi. Oh, there you go. Fly fishing. And I'm like, man, that's, it's so counter. And I think it's Kevin Grossi is probably, he, he was one of, when I was working at Lola, he was one of my biggest uh, uh, kind of, I don't know, I, I, would, I looked up to him when he would come back from like a weekend or like a couple weekends just being like super relaxed and be like, what's up, Kevin? What'd you do, man? I'd be like, oh, man, I went fly fishing up before Collins. It was awesome. And so that I, I really, I vividly remember Kevin being one of the people that I was like, I want to be that chill after a couple of days off. <laughs> And then you hit that 25-year-old point, and you're like, all right, maybe now that I'm, I'm yeah. uh, going to get into it. Yeah, that's why it's the pre or post 25 is, is pretty pivotal in, uh, yeah. in the lifespan within the industry. All right, I want to get into something I, I loved reading, how much you love noodles. And I'm actually going to quote you, say, I love noodles, period. <laughs> like probably more than any person should, end quote. <laughs> Like and I'd I was probably like, eat them for every single meal if it wasn't frowned upon. And I don't know that it is. I've, no, I've I did it in Vietnam every day, oh, all day, so every good. day. I've gotten into this like uh, uh, argument, air quotes, it's not really an argument, but I told Betsy, I was like, Betsy, I would eat rice every single day of my life. Yeah. And it's not weird. You know, she's like, oh, are we going to do rice again? I was like, well, yeah. You know, there's entire civilizations of people that every single day, rice. So, yeah, it's integral so of their existence. Same thing with the noodles. So, as we always like to do, a little best served on icebreaker game. I wanted to nerd out on noodles with you, and so yeah. we, we always come up with some interesting name for it. And I was like, "What is a good name for a noodle? A noodle game?" And I couldn't come up with a <laughs> short little name, so I literally have a whole saying. Slippery so slope. The the slippery noodle, the cellophane <laughs> noodle. So Momofuku Ando said, "Peace will come to the world." when the people have enough noodles to eat. And I was like, that sounds like we should name this game. <laughs> and Momofuku Ando mm. kept a lot of us alive. I mean, he mm. invented instant ramen and pretty much the most consumed food product in the world. And I know I survived college days and I was like, ooh, I can afford yeah. to put a fried egg on this thing today. I'm yeah. balling. Ballin' to your point. I mean, sometimes if you're feeling really frisky, you chop up a hot dog in that bad boy. Maybe even if you had some like some shrimp left over. You're a wild man. I know. That's <laughs> I disgusting. Just, all all you'd have right is now. shrimp tails. So you just <laughs> throw some shrimp tails in just to get some, some <laughs> yeah. more flavor. 
umami, if you will, the umami of the uh, instant uh, ramen. So I wanted to play an obvious game. I wanted to take a a culturally iconic food like the noodle across all of Asia, its defining of culture, and ask the the white dude in Texas to tell us about noodles. (laughs) Right? So it made made all kinds of sense. Oh, man. Am I going to be quizzed here? All right. I'm just going to let you, because I know that you are a connoisseur of noodles, tell us about some of the noodles. And I'm going to give you a couple noodles from a few different countries. And just give us the ones that you would pick. And okay. we're going we're gonna to do some bracketology. That's very okay. Midwest. That's what, very ones, Texas, that, right? what, what, ones that I would pick for what? Like, so I'm going to tell you something. You're going to pick who would go. If, if you had to pick one of the two noodles and uh, go head to head you would pick one so we got to start with china the okay. inventors of the noodles yeah two two styles of noodles that i'm a big fan of out of the hundreds of styles but you got lo mein mm-hmm. versus dandan noodles dan which dan of those two dandan dan dan 100 i couldn't even get out the whole question i like it dandan i'm, dan. I'm sorry is, did i this perfect your yeah. exuberance is it Dan means Dan Dan without a doubt. Tell us Dan Dan one hundred percent. More surface area. It's going to be able to bind more. It's going to be able to soak up whatever sauce is around there. It's going to be able to, uh, you know, Dan Dan noodles are a little thicker, so they're like a little heartier too. But mainly getting that like wider surface area for, you know, the the, the amount of uh, uh, ultimate soppage of whatever sauce or uh, you know soup it may be involved with. Like grandma, I, grandpa, Lao Wang. I'm into it. It's that nom prick, especially. And yes, mm. I'm glad you brought up Lao Wang. For those who don't know, now you know, Lao Wang Noodle House in Denver, Colorado holds a special place in both of our hearts. And uh, the Wang family has been doing it at a high level with their Zha Long Bao, Dan Dan noodles and Man. such for a long time. Uh, you have a favorite story about the Wangs? I just want to throw it out there because... I have some fond memories of them kicking people out. <laughs> yeah. Of yeah. Lawway. Those Google are the House. best. So, I mean, excuse, you know, like if I break into like a horrible uh, accent or whatever, I just can't help it. I got So, you know how old those sweet people are. And every single time I would go in there, I'd be like, man, I just hope they're doing well. I just hope like today they're open because you know, just as well as me, Jensen, that, you could roll up on like Wednesday at like three o'clock and there would just be a sign outside that just says, Nope, we ran out of shit. We're not cooking today. And really what that means is grandma and grandpa Lowen just wanted to go the fuck home because they didn't feel like working, but they can do that when you're that good of a restaurant and you already have people waiting at the door the second you open up. So I'd say one of my favorite times uh, ever going there was probably with Bobby Rayburn uh, from duo and him and I, when we went, we went real hard. We'd get like a triple or a quad stack of Jalan Bao and at least like one full plate of pot stickers. And uh, so we know what we want. And it's very integral to know which is very, it's extremely important to know what you want before you walk in the door of Lao Wang. Because if you ask Grandma Lao Wang or Grandpa Lao Wang, you can't even ask him for a second glass of water, really. But if you ask him if you can like take something to go or if you can sub something, they will legit not talk to you for another like 45 minutes. Cause they're like, don't, don't just know what you want. So we already ordered, we had our quad stack of Jalan Bao and our plate of uh, pot stickers. 
and uh, these two girls come in um, and they sit down and she's, you know, they're like looking at the place, like the condiments, like the soy sauce and the black vinegar and everything. It's like a little sticky and like aged, but in like the best way possible, right? And so they're looking at it and I could tell like the girl's like, ooh, this place is a little nasty. And, but she's never been there before. So she looks up to Grandma Wai Wang. She says, do you guys have fried rice? And I've never seen a more intense look of just like pure disdain and disappointment than Grandma Lao Wang. And Grandma Lao Wang legit pulled both her menus from the table and she said, no, not here, not this restaurant, you go somewhere else. And I was like, oh, that is cold. It's cold and intense and I love you so much because you just know what you want to do. And you've been doing it so well for so long that you can do it and no one's going to question it. I think that's my personal favorite story. This is absolutely a true story for everyone listening. There's, there's no <laughs> embellishment whatsoever in this story. No. I've seen it multiple no. times. My favorite is when somebody <laughs> spills something and they make you clean it up. It's my, it's my favorite. <laughs> that's my favorite interaction. Oh, uh, boy. Can I miss that lady? And also what's really interesting is they don't give a fuck who you are. I know their no. son. I've hung out with their son. I've brewed beer with their son. Yeah, I've come into their restaurant with their son. And... I come in a week later, they don't care who I am. And I'm kind of like, all right, I like it. It's good. You know, uh, like, yeah. take me down a peg and just feed me well. And I'm happy. I mean, there was a point where I was, I had just had this like insatiable lust for Lowing Noodle House. And I would just go there sometimes like twice a week if I could, which probably not great uh, in the grand scheme of things for my body, especially. But, um, she did notice that I got a new haircut one time and it made me feel so special. She was like, Oh, new hair. And I was like, yeah. Oh my God. Thank you. Like almost like I want to cry a little bit. Like she remember I got a fucking haircut. <laughs> the two moments in your life, George Clooney yeah. and the Denver omelet and grandma Wang, <laughs> and grandma rec- Wang recognizing my fresh new cut. Man, Makes sense. hundred percent. I love that we took this game completely. I don't even remember what the question was, but Dan Dan Noodles. All right. I'm sorry. So in China, this is perfect. Perfect. People need to hear these stories and need to go eat a La Wang Noodle House. All right. So Japan, another country, iconic. Uh, Soba or ramen? (sighs) We talking like alkaline ramen? Talking. Oh, I I mean, get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's your call. I say ramen. So I say ramen as far as like holding its structural integrity in in a in in whatever base it's in for a longer amount of time and not becoming mushy. I feel like soba, if it sits for a longer amount of time, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. And you know, compared to like whatever the the, the alkalinity of the noodle and all that jazz, I think soba can get um, a little more mushy and and a little more. Uh, uh, boogery, if you will. I don't. Yeah, think that's, that's why proper. it's served cold a lot, right? Because of yeah. that that fragility. Look, there's no yeah. wrong answers here. I'm taking yeah. everything for sure. Yeah. We're just putting so, you on the spot to give people a little competitive yeah. edge going. You know, keep it coming with the nudes. All right, now we're gonna go uh, different countries. If you had to okay. to go pho, and I know you said you spent time in Vietnam against yep. pad thai the iconic noodles of Thailand. You got to pick one to eat every day for the rest of your life. Which one of the two? Well, 
is the Those... nutritional values of pho or uh, I, th- I thought you meant just like have to pick one and like one goes off the face of the earth no hell no like i i would jump off a cliff i would i i'd be like i can't do this pho for sure i mean you have like star anise cinnamon cardamom bone broth i mean the oxtail it's like just if it's made properly it's just so good for you and then um i mean i would have to have pho with like a hundred percent of the condiments that you would find on like a little tiny three-foot plastic table in like the center of hanoi with you know like all the vegetables you could possibly imagine like uh garlic and vinegar and like fresh made like sambal all that but yeah, yeah where the bull where the bowl of pho weighs more than the tiny little lady at the hawker yeah. who actually made it for yeah. you yeah and and it and it costs like a buck 20 if that yeah you do love noodles i will oh. i will co-sign on that you love noodles <laughs> i can just tell how just, how thoughtful you are about noodles and everybody everybody listening i care get your life together and start caring about noodles <laughs> okay noodles. it'll you make you happy uh i actually have a LLC called uh, Christian's uh, Mr. Wish Noodle Coaching LLC. You're just trying it's, to bring a noodle slump in the middle of your life and can't figure out where to go. They are that's like not true. Anyone's looking that up, but it should be. It should be. I like that. <laughs> I like that. This show is informing the fact that you may have a new business on your hand. You may become oh. a life coach of noodles. I'm taking notes as we speak. I'm into it. That was super fun. Uh, super playful. Uh, let's go deep into some people, man. I yeah. love that you're already talking about people like Bobby. Got to talk a little bit about Kevin, but let's go. Even mom had a big impact with that. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of people that are really the foundation of the impact they've had on you and, and got yeah. you into this, uh, into this crazy industry. Who's somebody you want to, tell everybody about that we need to acknowledge oh man um i was i was a sous chef at blue sushi and this was in uh omaha omaha nebraska and there was an old uh there's an older japanese guy and he well i guess takasan in denver helped a lot too um but i was in the hot side of the kitchen okay so blue sushi has you know like the hot kitchen they also have the whole um the sushi bar outside of course so the hot kitchen we were always kind of like you know you're you held the sushi guys in high revere i mean we all know sushi is an art it's extremely hard to perfect it's really hard to even get halfway good at but um takasan took his time with me one night uh when we were slow in the hot kitchen and he let me out on on the sushi line which was like gold, which is like very, very special. You don't just like let anybody out there. We're talking about a guy who would like, if one of his sushi chefs fucked up a roll or like missliced slicing on the grain of like a piece of hamachi or something, he'd get the back of his knife, like the back blade of his knife and like slap him on the knuckles really quick. So like, that's just, it was intense. And so I think when he took the time out of his night, this like, in just so intensely what I thought frightening Japanese man to just take a little bit of time and teach me how to roll some sushi. I thought that was like everything. And I took that and I mean, eventually just kind of faked it till I made it. I mean, I work with you at tag. 
uh, you know, as a sushi guy, and then I moved on to the Four Seasons, and that it was just insane. And it was all just because that one guy just took a little bit of time and showed me how to do that, and just like consistently would help me whenever I would, you know, be a little bit slow in the kitchen. I would make sure the line cooks were set, and I'd go out and learn a little bit more about sushi here and there. You find yourself trying to pay that forward, giving a little bit more time, a little recognition to people since it had such an impact on you as you've kind of navigated the industry. Absolutely. It's so important. I mean, just even if it's, I mean, I'm on spirit side, I'm on wine and spirit side now. And even if it's just imparting a little bit of knowledge to, you know, a coworker or someone, whatever, like a server or waitress that, never knew whatever how something was distilled or where something came from or what kind of a yeast strain goes into what I just kind of those little things mean a lot to other people that you may not think mean a lot just imparting those little bits of knowledge here and there because that could you know potentially cause someone to go home and decide they're going to geek out on something and maybe they're going to go become a psalm or something like that or a sushi chef makes sense to me uh, you, you mentioned it just now you made the transition uh more focused on beer wine spirits yeah uh, the, the front of house and and you made you made that transition uh, i'm interested in that time was there a, was there a person was there a moment that you said i'm really interested in potentially rounding out my game or getting the hell out of the kitchen maybe go to that moment and is there somebody who maybe took you under your their wing at that point yeah, so, oh man, front of the house world is, we all know, completely different, especially the bar game. Uh, good bartenders these days don't really want to take their time and teach anybody else because they want to keep their positions. We all know that. That's just the way like high-end bars and restaurants work. Um, but I was actually, it was when I was a sushi chef at the Four Seasons. So I would get off be doing sushi at the Four Seasons, um, close whatever, like 9.30 or 10. And then I would go over to a club in downtown Denver and I would be the bar back and, you know, get out of there, like whatever, like three, four in the morning. I don't know how I managed to get back to the four seasons the next day. I was doing that for a long time. And um, for me, it was never about, Oh, fuck the kitchen, getting out of the kitchen. And like, I like pay, I mean, pay grade anything like that. It was the fact that I like talking to people. And I like being with people and I like socializing a lot more. And I felt um, just, I just felt a little trapped, I guess. Um, I still love cooking. And I still, even after I went out to the front of the house, um, you know, continue to do like private sushi catering and all that kind of stuff because you can't take that lust for a passion, you know, that, that passion away from someone like a chef has. You just can't do that. But um, it was mainly just to, to be more social. And just to, just like you said, pretty much just like round it out. Get the full picture. Yeah, I yeah. love hearing that. Right, who's somebody else we can talk about that uh, that you see being an important figure uh, in the industry that had a hand in you and potentially dozens and dozens of other people? Because once you're a good mentor, you like find people to mentor, right? I For think that's sure. such an important thing. Uh, you, I, I didn't tell you we were going to talk about this, but I'm going to put you on the spot for a minute. You were actually one of them when you did a little thing called the chive test. And anybody who doesn't know what Jensen's chive test was, and he was a chef de cuisine, 
he would uh, ask his line cooks to come in and he'd give them a bunch of chives and he'd say, show me how you cut the chives. And uh, if I think the first time I did it, I thought I was like, I even got my sushi knives out. I was like, oh, that's perfect. And you're like, this garbage. I was like, why is it garbage? It's like they're bruised. They're squished. Those are going to be garbage in like 30 minutes. And so every time I would go in, I'd be like, I'm not going to fuck up the chat test. And I would just learn how to get more, a little bit more delicate, a little more delicate. And I think that actually carried over a lot into uh, a lot of different things that I did in my restaurant career, in my, in my, you know, in my time in the kitchen. Just look, taking a look at little small delicate ingredients like that and, uh, you know, really just showing care for them. Oh man, I appreciate that. The chive test was <laughs> something else, wasn't it? It was. It was I, nerve-wracking. It <laughs> really was. I hundreds of people took the chive tests over the yeah. years. And to, and to give everyone even a little more depth on it, uh it was I would give it to people who who came in and staged and and were looking for a job a lot of the yeah. times I'd say, "Take these chives, I want you to slice them. If you do it properly, I'll give you a job on the spot and I'll pay you whatever <laughs> you want to get paid." And yeah. in seven years, I think like one person, maybe two people ever passed it on the first try. Cause like I have this saying where it's like, it's important the way you slice chives, how you sear foie gras. Cause we all want the sexy shit, man. But yeah. none of us want to do the like other stuff. So it's like the medial. Take, yeah. I think it's so or important. What we think I, remember, I remember uh, Paul Bocuse had the like, you know, fry me an egg test. You know, these simple things that people are like, I can fucking fry an egg. <laughs> and they fuck it up because they wouldn't yeah. take the time and the care. And then I loved it. Like, I remember you specifically, too, coming and being like, you know, like all of us, we've got a little ego. We're like, oh, I got this. And then when I explain it to you, the depth of what I'm looking for and the angles and the care for the knife and the cleanliness of the cutting board and, and the technique. And then I slice chive uh, and they basically look like, like man. people go, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> if this guy is this serious about chives, this is this is no joke. And yeah. uh and I, I appreciate that. And I and uh yeah, for everyone listening, unsolicited, definitely Christian <laughs> uh dropped that me about on this me. like weeks ago. <laughs> Did not tell you. I love it. The chive test has actually come up a couple times recently, and mm. I, I really want somebody to take up that mantle. I actually yeah. explained it to some It needs of the, to like, be a thing social media thread in like depth i was like here's everything i'm thinking when i do the chive test because i'm hoping somebody <laughs> takes it and runs with it and keeps it alive i really appreciate that shout out and that little walk down memory lane that was a lot of fun yeah and you definitely had that like it was clear to me that when i challenged you in that moment and you realized okay i have more to, further to go you weren't yeah. like hurt by that you know you were no, all right i mean don't get me wrong I, I i i did think i was already like i i had this vision of myself and then i looked at the caliber of cooks and chefs around me and i was like oh man you got a lot of fucking work to do bud <laughs> you got a lot of work. and you were game that was clear like the, was so game. you you were instantly give up the, the very next day you were in the tribe 100 percent for life because christian angry rule you did not run <laughs> from it a hundred percent. I love that. All right. Yeah. This is my favorite part of the show. This is all about acknowledging the humans in our industry. Cause they fucking matter at every level. And so 
the function of the unsung hospitality heroes is so important, an opportunity for us to recognize other people because we're nothing without the people that surround us in, in, the, in the trenches. And so I was very excited to, to read this. There's a lot of meta moments happening here and somebody I hadn't thought about in years. So talk to us about your, one of your, and there's many, but one of your nominees for Unsung Hospitality Heroes, who's that? Andrew Archangel, man. Andrew Archangel, you and I both work with him. Um, now he works at the Four Seasons in Seattle, I believe. Uh, Andrew is like one of the most like mild-mannered uh, Hawaiian dudes you're ever going to meet in your life. He, he, he dubbed himself the Pineapple King. Uh, that was not me. That was him 100% just for everyone listening. Like, I hope this guy's not being an asshole. Um, but the biggest, the coolest thing I thought about Andrew, um, other than being extremely mild mannered, like I said, I was, this is, uh, at the four seasons that when most of this happened in Denver, um, we would, I'd get, uh, I'd get a sushi party sprung on me from catering and they'd be like, Hey man, we need like 200 rolls. And I would say, okay, well, I need time. And they said, well, you don't have time. And I would say okay, well, I need help. And Andrew, I mean, this is just one, we can talk about 500 instances, but let's say, well, A, Andrew could work any damn station in the whole restaurant. He could do garmage, sides, room service, grill, saute, break down fish if need be. I mean, everything, like 100%. But he was never like searching for that recognition. He was never like, I'm gonna, I, I wanna be known as a chef or I wanna have the name on the code or whatever. Um, but Andrew was always the guy to be like, all right, dude, like I got to break down these 30, 30 trout for service, but I'll, I'll come help you and I'll come help you roll for a little bit. Cause I know you're in the weeds and you're in the shit and Hey, no one else could help me because <laughs> nobody else knew how to do sushi uh, except for a couple, couple of the chefs. But of course, I mean, they were, you know, they had stuff on their plate. Um, and I mean, like it could be like a Friday or Saturday night and we'd have whatever, like two, 300, however many insane amount of covers uh, that we were going to do at the four seasons. John Travolta could have been dining with us in 30 minutes or whatever. And um, Andrew would just come into my little sushi room. It was actually the butcher room that I had uh, for sushi because it was chilled and they only used it for butchering every now and then. Um, but I had my own little, you know, sanitized like section of this cold room. And he'd come in and he'd just like big smile. He'd be like, sup, bro. And I'd be like, sup, bro. He's like, I brought you some musubi, bro. And I'd be like, oh, Andrew. He'd bring me spam musubi. And little things like that at the beginning of a shift where you, like, you already know you're going to get your ass kicked, it like made like all the difference in the world. But just seeing him being able to just like bounce around to station, to station, to station, to station as this just like little like orb, <laughs> like not even thinking about it, that always just blew my mind. Because I was always super, uh, uh, I was very intimidated by grill because I'm a perfectionist. And the reason I wanted to go do sushi. So I was like, fuck, what if I mess up that $200 tomahawk or that, you know? So it was always cool to see him be able to float back and forth and just help everybody out. And not, and not search for recognition. That's the biggest thing. Not be like, whoa, oh, do, you know, he just did what he did. Andrew is a, an archetype that you see in the kitchen like a fucking unicorn. Yeah. Where they're just unflapped. Doesn't happen. <laughs> They're unflappable, and you see them a handful of times. And anybody listening, 
everybody in the industry will meet one, maybe two of them. <laughs> so I'm confident that everyone listening is going to be like, yep, I know that dude, right? <laughs> or that yeah. gal, I know them. Unflappable. Never. Yeah. And at the same time, able to handle their shit. Like, not somebody who's just super chill and cool and can't swing it. Like, he no, can handle swing shit. It. Like, he can handle if you it. see someone going down on, like, a Friday or Saturday night in any station, he wouldn't be like, No, he'd be like, no. He's like, go, just, just move over, bro. Just go take a second. I got this. And then once whatever, you know, poor kid that just graduated from, uh, what's what's the culinary school in Denver? Oh, it's slipping my mind. Johnson and Wales is the Yeah, Johnson one. and Wales. You know, like these kids would come in from Johnson and Wales. Of course, what they want to do. They want to start a cooking career in the Four Seasons. But you can't take a kid out of Johnson and Wales and have a textbook written for them on what it's going to be like a multi-million dollar kitchen at 7.30 on a Friday night. You just can't do that. I don't care how much fucking schooling you go through. You can't teach that shit. And you can know all the cutting types and every angle and every sear and everything. And then when you get that fourth ticket, you're like, oh my God. Oh no. Is this ever going to end? You always need that person to be like, it's okay, bro. It's always going to end. <laughs> like we're all going to go home tonight. It's okay. He, you, you mentioned the not wanting recognition. I remember moments being like, no, Andrew, you fuck killed it. You like, you're like on the next level. You just, you just beat that level. Yeah. You're on to the next level. And he's like, like you cool, said, bro. sup, bro. He's like, cool, bro. Cool, bro. Thanks. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks bro. Thanks. See you tomorrow. No, no, no. Come, come back here. I'm trying to be like your leader and inspire <laughs> you to like run through a wall. He's like, cool, bro. And I like the thoughtfulness too. You mentioned the musubi. I remember spam Sundays at tag restaurants, oh. and mm. and uh, mm. I can eat seven. I can't eat eight. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it depends on if that rice to spam ratio is correct or not. I mean, that's really it, what it boils down to. It's got to be low sodium. I, my gut can't be low sodium. Strength. Got to be low sodium, and don't and don't be bringing me any of that three to one spam spam to rice ratio bullshit. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm so happy that Andrew Archangel got an opportunity to be mentioned because. There's just a handful and they really, really matter. And, and honestly, yeah. honestly, there might be more of them in the industry, but because they're so chill, because they're not looking for the limelight, we overlook them. And it's very rare that somebody can hold a presence because Andrew is a presence. You know that he's got it. Yeah. He just isn't trying to flaunt it. And so what I like about us being able to talk about him is I'm hoping somebody goes, you know, I kind of got somebody in the kitchen like that. They, they don't, they don't have the recognition that maybe they should to recognize them. That's what literally what this whole show is about. Yeah. Recognize, acknowledge, celebrate people that really matter because they're standing right next to you at this very moment. We just forget about that because we're paying attention to the, the shiny shit over here. I appreciate us getting to talk about some of those people talking about noodles. And we always like to leave everybody with a little, little words to live by a little quote, a little mantra, a little something that keeps us, motivated take out in the world and make it a better place and this is no surprise you said if you're not making mistakes you're not trying hard enough what does that mean to you what how can we take that and apply it to ourselves to me it's like every every day like everything i if i feel like i can't do something it almost makes me want to try and do it more i, I don't know if that makes sense or not but if i see something that's extremely daunting you know you're going to make mistakes. No one's going to be perfect in something their first uh, go around in anything. I mean, it's just sushi, for instance. I probably messed up 
50 rolls before I was finally like, wow, I really feel good about that. But once you get to that point, feels great. And then you can just move on to the next thing and then just start fucking up on that until you get really good at it <laughs> and, and just really own it. I, I think owning your mistakes is huge too. I think a lot of people will try and do something new and they'll make mistakes or something over and over and over. And then they'll just get frustrated and leave. And they don't ever get to that threshold of breaking through or that like aha moment of, oh man, that's what it's about. That, that's what it feels like to be good at this. I, I think that's what that means to me. Mistakes are not if, it's when. Oh, because yeah. they're going to happen. Here's the interesting thing that's a challenge. And when I hear you talking, I'm like, we need more of it. Is it's hard enough to be the person willing to make the mistakes what the bigger challenge sometimes is, is being the leader willing to allow and even encourage your people to make these micro mistakes because they 100%. lead to the biggest upside. And that's what I want people to hear on both sides of the equation. Push your people, allow them to make the mistakes, let them fuck up the chives a hundred times until they get yeah. it right. But it's the pursuit that I think is important. So I want people on both sides them, of that equation to hear it. Let them, let them go under par a little bit on you know one thing on garmage or you know one one topping or one something and something that you know that you can jump into real quick and fix that mistake but when you realize that and you call them out on that in the middle of the shift or in the middle of you know the night or whatever you know in the back of your mind it's going to take you 45 seconds maybe a minute to chop up whatever those julienne bell peppers or whatever it is but they'll never forget that when you call them out and be like dude what what why did you do this like oh, that just can't happen again bud it's okay i got it and the world's gonna not gonna end and like everyone's gonna go home tonight okay but you just can't do that again like i can think of you know multiple instances when that happened to me where you know whether it was like a sushi mix or uh whatever poached lobster tails or something and i never let it happen again so it's like i never want that feeling again <laughs> but just like you said letting them letting them do that and not taking it out no not taking it out on them just uh having them know it's it's okay teachable moment teachable moment it's all about that communication christian amazing conversation so good to have thank you Jensen. nostalgic moments thank you for bringing some value to the conversation and some levity i appreciate it thank you for being on the show thank you so much jensen i really appreciate it it was a great podcast so a lot of people especially in our industry continue to listen to it and delve into it because it's rad there's only like six people listening but they are stoked cheers you're from hawaii we talked about a little bit the pineapple king i'm very very interested i love that i love that uh you know you're a you're a local boy what does it mean to to be hawaiian through the lens of food. It's, it's such a impactful food culture there. What does it mean to be a Hawaiian in, in your mind? Um, I guess what it comes down to is just the one word, aloha, man. Um, you know, growing up, the culture, um, we're so diverse. We show love for one another. We help on one another. Uh, we're caring. We're, we share. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's one of the things that kind of, like, drove me to, you know, like, become a chef was, you know, like, just the, the food growing up. You know, you get so inspired, you, you know, so many tasty foods, so, so many different, you know, um, cultures that, you know, like, Hawaii is just, like, such a melting pot for all of that. 
love it. Right? Al- alo- aloha means hello and goodbye, right? I love yeah. that. Another word I was like, it's it's either ola- aloha or ohana, right? It's yeah. like such an important part of the culture there. Now, Christian and I, we joked about uh, uh, musubi, the spam musubi, right? We had uh-huh. spam Sundays at Tag. He talked about those times. He's high strung, right? Talked about those times he'd be just in the shit, in the weeds, and you just come bail him out. Just cool. He just had so much to say about how you're like just never phased. And I remember that as well. And would just come in with some spam and be like, dude, we got this. It's cool. I love that. Is that is that Hawaiian? Is that just you? Like, what is that? Just that cool as a cucumber when the shit hits the fan, which it always does in a restaurant. Well, you know, it's like for me, you know, it's like I used to be pretty hot headed, you know. So I learned to kind of like just, you know, take a step back, breathe, and reassess what's going on. And, you know, like for me, it's always like, even and to this day, I still kind of am like that. But then I learned how to, you know, subside it a bit to be more, you know, level headed. And uh, one of the biggest things, you know, coming, like coming up in the industry was, you know, like leading by example, right? So. If I ever saw anybody in the weeds or whatnot, I would, you know, you know, jump in and see what's going on and see where I can help out. And that was just, you know, part of my, part of who I am. So whenever I saw, you know, like Christian, you know, like getting weeded, you know, or anybody weeded, you know, like I would jump in and help out, you know, just because, you know, like you're only as strong as your weakest link. And if someone's, you know, crashing and burning, you know, like, are you going to let them do that? Or are you going to, you know, jump in and, help them out and get them out of that hole so they can, you know, like, get a breather. So I'm always that type of person to just help out where you need to. If there's a fire, you know, I'm going to run to it. I'm not going to run away from it. It was clear in just having worked with you for a little while and then what Christian was talking about. It's very interesting. We have such hero and martyr complexes in the industry, right? And so often we're like the victim of, of the circumstance, but it's like, this is what it is. And, and you find a way to overcome and you lean on your people, your team, right? It's Ohana, it's family. And then yep. also sometimes we just run over people. Sometimes the structure of hierarchy in the kitchen lends itself to wanting to beat the other guy and not in like a brotherly competition, beat the other guy because you want what they have. No, we're all in this together. How mm-hmm. do you bottle that, Andrew? Because man, we need more of that. And clearly it's just something that you found that sweet spot. I love that you say, you know, that you're hothead. I've never seen that. So that was surprising to hear. How do you find that, that Zen place? Because we need more of that. You got to give us the, uh, the remedy here, brother. Well, I don't know if I found the remedy or not, you know, it's just, I guess, you know, working for four seasons, you know, like they're very, um, I wouldn't say stringent, but they do have, you know, um, expectations of their employees to keep up those high expectations for the guests. And I guess some of that just kind of like, you know, like is instilled in, upon me just because of how long I've been with the company. I have since moved on from them, you know, been, been away from that company for about three years now, but you know, that just kind of helps shape who I am. And, you know, like I was a lot of times when I had my reviews and whatnot, you know, they said I can't kick ass online, I can cook and all that. But what it comes down to was, you know, like sometimes my attitude was would get in the way. And it was just kind of like, you know, like 
hearing that numerous times, you know, like finally someone, you know, actually giving me examples and proof upon was like a wake up call. And I was just like, yeah, you know, I, I see how I can be at times. And, you know, like I, in order for me to progress and move forward, you know, I need to work upon those, those faults. And it's still, you know, in a work in the making, it's not going to, you know, like change overnight or anything, you know, like there's signs where like, I kind of like catch myself falling into, you know, like, old ways and I was just like then that's when I have to like kind of step on the brakes and take a breather and then just reassess you know like how I'm going to handle the situation I mean isn't that the way of the industry where we're built upon the foundation of being reactive because we're waiting for a ticket right we're waiting for somebody to kind of tell us what to do as far as the interaction when it goes to actually executing on the line and so we start to get into that mentality where everything becomes reactionary and sometimes yeah. that can be dangerous. Right. And so I think about uh, radical candor and, and you said you kind of took in that criticism and, and when they gave you specific examples, I think that's important. I think it's important if we try and find ways to just constantly be giving praise and criticism, praise and criticism, praise and criticism at equal measure and equal intensity. Sometimes that's where we lose track, where when we do something wrong, you get fucking yelled at and we do something right. It's like, cool, man, good job. And yeah, <laughs> and I've been guilty of that for sure. So I love I love hearing that a little bit. All right. Tell us a uh, tell us something you remember about Christian when you guys were working together, some moment that you guys were interacting, <laughs> some some time where he's running around like his hair's on fire. What was some, uh, some moment that you remember that you can share with us? Uh, there's like lots of things I, I can't remember. Uh, I remember when he, when he first started, he was tasked with having to put sushi on a stick. And we, <laughs> he and I both thought that was really stupid. Uh, one specific moment I remember, um, I was working a station. I think it was the, the side station. And he was in sushi as usual. And I would always get his tickets for some reason on my, on my printer. Throughout the night, I was saving those uh, copies of his sushi tickets. And then I waited for the moment where he was um, starting to clean up shop and whatnot. And then I asked the runner, like, hey, man, I've been saving this all night long. You want to just kind of go up to Christian and be like, hey, man, did you get these tickets? And then, you know, just to see his reaction. So the runner was in on it. So he went over and then you just see Christian's jaw drop. He just saw a stack of tickets. He's like, what the F and he lost his he shit. Just, he lost his shit. And then he saw me off in the distance, kind of like, get, like laughing at him and looking at him. And he knew exactly like, you know, like you, you mother effer, you got me good. Oh man. Those moments are so important. And Christian's the kind of guy who, who, that's that's like an easy get, huh? To get him yeah. to get livid. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's super funny. What I like about that is is he joked about some of those scenarios where you know, like you guys had that brotherly vibe as well, which I think is super cool. And sometimes people haze in the kitchen, and they're like, "Man, fuck this guy! Like, where is he coming from?" It's important for us to have that kind of banter, but to mm -hmm. come from a place of like respect and trust. And that was really really clear. Like you could give him all the shit in the world because he knows your heart's in the right place and you're going to back him up every single time. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the vibe that it's just such a pure and beautiful thing in the kitchen. And we need more and more and more of that. Uh, tell us real quick, just to tease everybody, since we will have 
your own episode down the road, which I'm really excited to dig into that some more, especially to learn about your roots in Hawaii. But tell us what, uh, what you're working on these days since you've moved on from the Four Seasons. So I just recently opened up a new concept with Top Golf. I joined the team back in November, and they were opening up a new uh, concept for the company out here in uh, Washington, specifically out in Kirkland, Washington. Um, it was a new concept called a lounge by Top Golf. So it's if you ever been to a normal Top Golf, you know it's a pretty big you know venue with three levels to you know, hit golf balls out, out from. Whereas uh, with this concept, they're looking to get into denser metro areas. So everything's like, everything that they're doing is indoors. So we have like indoor bays where they can play golf games. Um, not just golf, but baseball, football, hockey and such. But they also, what the new concept was, you know, they wanted to focus on the food and the, um, the food and beverage area of it more, more so than their typical venues. So I saw that opportunity and wanted to, you know, like get on board with something that was going to be brand new and then possibly take off in, you know, in the near future and see where that takes me. So I love hearing that. Now I know I'm going to geek out and do a bunch of research on Top Golf thanks to you. So. I'll be up late tonight. I appreciate that. <laughs> and Andrew, I just appreciate talking to you, man. Always just oh, good man. vibes. And uh, I'm so glad when I read your name on Christian's little questionnaire that we send out, I was fucking pumped because I had great <laughs> fond memories of working with you and just you're a pro, man. You're a pro. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.